morning, Abundant Life Church, and welcome. My name is Bob. I'm one of the pastors at ALC. So glad that you're here with us this morning. Today, I have the privilege of wrapping up our four-week series called Hidden Treasures, where we've been looking at the parables of Jesus. And I wanna start our time together with two separate questions. So I'm gonna ask these, I'm gonna invite you to participate wherever you're joining us from, whether you're at a campus or online, uh, maybe you can participate in the chat. Uh, but here's the first question, is nonfiction true? So if you're at a campus, maybe throw up a hand. If you think nonfiction is true, maybe you're trying to remember which one's fiction, which one's nonfiction. That's okay. Uh, put it in the chat. Is nonfiction true? A uh, second question for you, the opposite. What about fiction? Is fiction true? Same thing, show of hands, uh, type it into the chat. Hopefully you have a consensus wherever you're joining us from. I remember these two questions coming up in a college course. And when we were asked, I would assume that our answers looked very similar to your answers. You see, most of us agreed that nonfiction is true while fiction is not true. You see, to us today, we often define truth as being historically accurate. Like when we say a movie is based on a true story, what we often mean by that is it's based on something that actually happened at some point in history, right? It's based on historical fact. When you ask your child whether or not they're telling you the truth, what you're really asking them is, are they recounting the story correctly in terms of what actually happened? Now, the genre of fiction is certainly not known for its historical accuracy, right? Now, the genre of fiction is one of creativity and imagination. It's a genre of fairy tale. So therefore, when asked today whether or not we think it's true, most of us probably said no. However, a pre-modern, first-century audience would have thought very differently. While fiction might not contain historical fact, they would say it can contain a deeper, more meaningful truth about the world that we live in. And G.K. Chesterton, he puts this so poignantly. He says, fairy tales or fiction they're more than true, not because they tell us that dragons exist, but because they tell us that dragons can be beaten. You see, when asked whether or not a story about a slain dragon is true or not, most of us would probably say, no, absolutely not. It's not true. Dragons don't exist. That didn't actually happen. But a first century listener would say in regards to truth, the existence of dragons is entirely irrelevant. A tale about a slain dragon is absolutely true because it tells us that a dragon can be conquered. Now, I stress the importance of finding truth in fiction this morning because Jesus' parables, they didn't actually happen, right? We have been looking in this series at fictional tales told by Jesus and yet in them we find profound truth, truth about the kingdom of God 
truth about the character of God, truth about how we ought to live if we are going to participate in the kingdom of of God right here and right now. And there are so many parables, way too many for a four-week series, but so far we've unpacked three of them. And this morning, we're gonna unpack three more parables. Now, I know what you're thinking. We did one a week for three weeks. How in the world are we gonna do three in one week this morning? The answer is very simple. I was given triple the time today. I don't know if you knew that when you signed up for church this morning, that it's gonna be an hour and a half message, but welcome, it's gonna be great. I'm obviously kidding, hopefully no one turned off their TV by now. We're gonna go through these in the normal time, don't worry. Uh, But there's a reason we're looking at three. Now these parables show up back to back to back in Luke chapter 15, and they all revolve around the same idea, the same theme about uh, something being lost, but then found. And so if you're with me, my title for today is Kingdom Party. I would recommend if you're taking notes, write that down, Kingdom Party. And we're gonna be in Luke chapter 15. So if you've got a Bible, uh, go ahead, open it up to Luke 15, find your spot there. And since I really don't have triple the time today, let me pray over our time in Luke 15, and then we'll jump right into the text. Uh, God, as we turn to your word, uh, we invite you into this space. God, whether we're at a a campus, watching at home, watching online, uh, wherever we're at, God, we invite you here now as we look at these parables in Luke 15, would you give us eyes to see you? Would you give us ears to hear you that we may see how you are showing up, what you would have to teach us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, if you're with me in Luke 15, we're gonna pick it up in verse one. It says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. And so we have the scene is set. We have the sinners and the tax collectors. They're gathered around Jesus. They have this eagerness, this excitement to hear Jesus speak. But meanwhile, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they see Jesus uh, gathering with the, with the sinners and they, they do not like it. And they look on in disagreement with Jesus. Now week one, Pastor David had an incredible message where he looked at the differences between tax collectors and sinners and Pharisees and teachers of the law. If you miss it, I can't recommend enough. Go and watch it. But he talked about how Pharisees today often get a really bad reputation. Right, But the reality is they weren't monoliths. They all had unique ideas and perspectives and beliefs. However, in the context of today's parables, they were in unanimous agreement. They did not like that Jesus ate with sinners, that he would welcome sinners, that he would teach sinners. And so what do they do, right? They they say, this man welcomes sinners and eats with him. And I love Jesus' response. He's uh, experienced an indictment from the Pharisees. And what does he do? He tells a story, tells a parable. And we might think it's one parable, but instead we get three. It picks up in verse three. So Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. I know what you're thinking. 
We all relate to this. This happens all the time, right? I just lost a sheep last week, right? Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go and search for the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. And then he calls his friends and neighbors together. He says, rejoice with me. I found my lost sheep. I tell you in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. So Jesus says, imagine you own a hundred sheep and one goes missing. He says, wouldn't you leave the 99 behind and go searching for the one? Kind of implying that the answer would have been, yes, of course you leave the 99 and you go for the one. But again, I realize we don't all own a hundred sheep, but if you do a little bit of research, you would know that the answer to his question would have been an emphatic no, absolutely not. Like if I have a hundred sheep and one goes missing, I'm not risking the 99 for the one. Like my, this is my wealth, this is my stability and I'm still looking pretty secure with 99 sheep. I'm not gonna risk it for the one. Jesus is setting up a common theme here that he is going to weave throughout all three of these parables. He is assigning infinitely more worth and value to this lost sheep than his audience would have expected. Right off the bat, we see that the love of God is reckless. The love of God, it would have been reckless to abandon the 99, to leave them even for a moment to go and search for the one, but that's what this shepherd does. And we sing an awesome song around ALC all the time called Reckless Love. And the chorus goes like this. Oh, the overwhelming and never ending reckless love of God. It chases me down. It fights till I'm found. It leaves the 99. This is the story of the lost sheep. I couldn't earn it. I don't deserve it. And yet still you give yourself away. Oh, the overwhelming, never ending, reckless love of God. You see, the audience would have considered that sheep lost and gone. And they would have been comfortable with the 99 they had left, but not this shepherd. This shepherd searches for the sheep until he finds it. And when he finds it, he puts it up on his shoulders and carries it home. I don't know if you've ever caught that detail. If you're taking notes, man, I would underline that in your Bible. He put it on his shoulders and he carried it home. Because for me, this sparks a very interesting question. And that is, what did the sheep do in this story in order to be found? What was the sheep's role in being found and returned home? What did the sheep do? The answer is absolutely nothing. Yeah, I love passages that mess with my theology. I know I'm a little bit strange in that way, but we all have theology. We all have beliefs about God and, and faith. And I love when some of my beliefs are challenges. I read something in scripture where I'm left walking away with, with questions and I have to wrestle with it or engage in conversation or, or read further. I, I love that personally. And this passage, this story messes with my theology because what I would expect to find here is that the shepherd searches for the sheep, right? He invites the sheep, follow me. And the sheep follows the shepherd back home. That's not what happened. You see, we might know this, but when we might not know this, but when a sheep gets separated from the herd, 
it becomes scared and frustrated and anxious. It's why the shepherd had to joyfully put it on his shoulders. It's the only way the shepherd was gonna get it back home was if it came kicking and screaming. You see, the sheep had nothing to do with its safe return home. In fact, he actually fought against it. You know, not only does Jesus ascribe sinners with incredible value, incredible worth in this story, but we also have insight here into just how far God is willing to go to pursue sinners. And afterwards, uh, he throws this huge party, a kingdom party. Man, what a great title for a message. Am I right or what? A kingdom party. That's going to come back up. We're going to see more kingdom parties as we go. So the Pharisees kind of rebuke Jesus. Oh, he's eating with sinners. So Jesus tells this story about how they have value and worth. And we would think, okay, point made, right? But no, he continues in verse eight. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together. She says, rejoice with me. I found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over even one sinner who repents. In this time, there's not a hundred of something and one goes missing. Now there's only 10. It's a woman with 10 coins. And the way the story is told, we would assume that this coin has incredible value. I mean, she lights a lamp, she's sweeping, she is tearing apart the house, she searches carefully, a Greek word, epimelo, she's searching exhaustively. She's expending energy on this hunt. And then she finally finds it, what does she do? She calls up her friends, her neighbors. She says, hey, we're gonna have a party. I found my lost coin. If you had to guess, how valuable is this coin? Like really put this in in your terms. How much would you have to lose? What dollar amount in order for you to exhaustively rip apart your entire house? And then furthermore, once you find it, you call up your neighbors, your friends, your coworkers. You say, come on over. We're going to have a party. And the reality is these coins only represented about one day's wage each. That's it. That's what she lost. I did some math and that's about a hundred to $140 today. And so imagine you lose a $120 bill as if there was such a thing, right? You lose your $120. I don't know about you. I'd probably search pretty hard for it. I'm not just going to consider it lost, right? I'd search for it, uh, but I'm not going to search exhaustively. I'm not going to search uh, more than a day's worth, right? If it's only a day's worth of wages. And I'll tell you what, I don't know about you, but if I found $120, my next response is not going to be calling up my friends and my neighbors and inviting them over for a party. Again, Jesus here is ascribing worth and value to this coin, this thing that is lost way beyond that which his audience would have expected. And as I realized uh, when I was reading this story, the value of the coin remained the same even when it was lost. 
I don't know if you noticed that. The coin's value remained the same even when it was lost. Now we could talk about the coin's purpose, right? The, if you follow me, the, the coin was created to do something. That's what currency is. It's created to be exchanged, right? It has a purpose. It couldn't exercise its purpose while it was lost, but the value of the coin never was in question. You see, sometimes I think the assumption is that a sinner only has value once they repent. And and repentance can be different across denominations, but that's often a presupposition, an assumption. A sinner only has value after they repent. But this story reveals that the sinners Jesus is eating with right now in this moment, they have value even while they're lost. They have value right now. Church, this means that you, no matter where you're at in life, no matter what your circumstances look like right now, you have incredible value. You have significant worth. These stories from Jesus show us that God, the creator of the universe says you are worth a reckless pursuit. And we might think, okay, point made. They got it, right? But if you're underlining in your Bible, I would underline the very next phrase in verse 11, Jesus continued. It's as if he's very concerned that the Pharisees, this rabbinic audience is not going to get it. And so he triples down. He tells another story. If he didn't get it from this angle, that's okay. I'm going to share another story, see if he can get it from this angle. Story three, he says, there's a man who had two sons. Okay, there's a man with two sons. The younger one said to his father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. And then not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had and he set off for a distant country. And there he squandered everything in wild living. And so we have a father and two sons. First, we had a hundred of something. One goes missing. Then we had two of something or then 10 of something and one goes missing. Now we only have two and one is lost. It's the younger son. He asks for his inheritance early, which is incredibly disrespectful even today, but more so back then. I mean, can you imagine one of your children coming to you and saying, hey, dad, I know you're not dead, yet, uh, but everything that you're going to give me when you die, uh, can you just go ahead and give that to me now? And then after that, they leave, they set off to a distant country. And while there, they squander everything. It says everything in wild living. It's the Greek word, asotos, which literally means without saving. Like this younger son has just squandered everything. He's lived life in such a way that it was beyond saving. He's beyond redemption. Hold on to that for later. So he gets this inheritance. He leaves, he squanders everything. He becomes a servant. It gets to the point where his job is to feed the pigs and he so desperately wants to eat even that what the pigs are eating. But it's out of his reach. Can't even have that. The listeners of the story would agree with the original assessment from Jesus. This younger son is beyond saving. He is beyond forgiveness. He is beyond redemption. But then something happens. In verse 17, we read, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And yet here am I, I'm starving to death. 
I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I've sinned against you. I've sinned against heaven. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. If you're taking notes, I would write down that phrase. He came to his senses. I think this is such a beautiful part of the story, but here's what we normally do with this, right? He came to his senses. It's like the son had a great epiphany, right? He went to the local library. He picked up a bunch of self-help books. He began to work really hard. He picked himself up by his bootstraps and he got his life together. And he put in all the work, he got it figured out. And then he plans to return to his father with this really heartfelt and genuine apology, but the phrase, he came to his senses, implies something else. You see, literally translated, it's when he came to himself. When he came to himself, it's as if in this moment where he has literally thrown his entire life away, he is reminded of his identity. He's reminded of who he is. Now, I don't know if you've ever tried to answer the question, who are you? Uh, but it's a really difficult question to answer. And I have a clip for you this morning that I think illustrates this perfectly. Check this out. So Dave, tell us about yourself. Who are you? Well, I'm a, an executive assistant at a major pet products company. Dave, I don't want you to tell us what you do. I want you to tell us who you are. Oh, all right. Um, I'm a pretty good guy. I, um, I like playing tennis on occasion. Um, also, not your hobbies, Dave. Just simple. Tell us who you are. I just... Maybe you could give me an example of what a good answer would be. Um, what did you say? <laughs> you want Lou to tell you who you are. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just... Uh... I'm a nice, easygoing man. I might be a little bit indecisive at times. Um, Dave, you're describing your personality. I want to know who you are. How would you answer that question? That's a tough one. Who are you? Uh, there's so many things in life that we can find our identity in, right? Between what we do and, and things about us, personality traits. But this son, he has a moment where he came to himself. He was reminded of his identity and the identity he was reminded of was the fact that he was a son. And he chooses, I'm gonna go back to my father. And this is where it gets even better. Church, this is probably my favorite part of all three parables. The son has this realization, this reminder of his sonship, of his identity. And he genuinely feels sorry, like sincerely feels sorry for what he's done. And he plans, he plans on apologizing to his father as he returns home. But notice what happens in verse 20. It says, he got up, he went to his father, but, but this is a huge, but I mean, when I was in student ministries, I would love pointing out all of the really big buts in scripture. Uh, it would usually get a laugh. Uh, church, this is a big, but he gets up, he goes to his father. He plans on apologizing, but while he was still a long way off, it's not even close yet. 
his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. Did you notice how much of the planned apology the son was able to blurt out before his father's response? Absolutely none of it. None of it. His father sees him while he's still a long way off. He's filled with compassion for him. He runs to him. He hugs him. He kisses him. He welcomes him home. And then he throws him a party, a kingdom party. The father extends overwhelming forgiveness to the son before he even apologizes. You see, I I think we often read these parables with presuppositions about faith about repentance, about redemption. But in context, we see the tremendous love a father has for a child. You see, the sheep didn't wander back to the shepherd. The shepherd, symbolic of God, sought after the sheep, found it, picked it up, put it on his shoulders and brought it home. The coin did not find itself. The woman, symbolic of God, searched exhaustively for it, found it and threw a party. And the younger son in the story realized he's a son and he goes home. And before he could even apologize, his father sees him from a long way off after everything that had happened, after he gave him his inheritance early, after he left and squandered it, the, the behavior that is asotos, beyond saving, beyond redeeming, after all of it, after the rock bottom of this younger son, he simply sees him in the distance, instantly is filled with compassion for him, runs towards him, hugs him, kisses him, and welcomes him home. What we see in these parables is that God loves those who are lost and he is recklessly, exhaustively pursuing them. It's not over though. In in verse 28, we're reminded that the younger brother had an older brother. And at this point in the story, the older brother hears that his younger brother is home He's heard that his dad has welcomed the younger brother back and that even has thrown him a party, all right? And we see how the older brother responds in verse 28. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. Kind of like the Pharisees are angry at Jesus right now and refusing to join him as he teaches these sinners. So his father went out and pleaded with him kind of like Jesus is with these stories, pleading with the Pharisees right now in this moment. But the the older son answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you. I've never disobeyed your orders. This was the Pharisees. They were really good at obeying God. Yet father, you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours Notice it's not brother of mine. He's distancing himself. It's this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home. You kill the fattened calf for him. See the anger of the older son. But look at the father's response. And I would argue that this is Jesus' response to the Pharisees in this moment as they are upset with him for eating with these sinners. These are Jesus' words to the Pharisees as much as they're the father's words to the older brother. The father says, my son... You are always with me and everything that I have is yours. 
but we had to celebrate. We had to be glad because this brother of yours, not just a son of mine, this brother of yours, Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, these brothers and sisters of yours, well, they were dead, but now they are alive. They, they were lost, but now they're found. You see, the, the more that we earn God's love, uh, the more that we try to or strive to earn God's love, the less we understand God's love for those who don't deserve it. And the reality is we can't earn God's love. We can't deserve it. And we kind of know that going in when we follow Jesus, but the longer we follow Jesus, the better our lives get. The more we look like Jesus, the more obedient we become, the more prone we are to having an attitude like the older brother. And if that's discouraging to you, like it is to me, here's what boggles my mind. The first century presupposition was that God embraces the Pharisees, but rejects the sinners. And our presupposition often today, because of teachings like this, is that God actually embraces sinners, but he rejects the Pharisees, the older brothers. The reality is neither of those are true. What I see here is a father who has two children and he loves them both. He loves them both with everything he's got. The father's not excluding the brother, the opposite. He says, you are with me. You're always with me. Everything that I have is yours. And there's a party going on and I want you there. And that's how it ends. We don't know if the older brother actually went in and joined the party. And I think it's a cliffhanger because the conclusion would have been lived out in real life, in real time, in that moment. That was Jesus saying to the Pharisees that, hey, there is a party. These guys have significant value, significant worth. God is seeking them recklessly, exhaustively and you are invited to join. You're invited to the party. Now, I wanna close by uh, just getting really practical with this. But before I do, I'd like to share with, uh, with you, church, a, a bit of a, a bittersweet uh, personal update. Uh, many of you know my wife and I, Kaylee, uh, we moved here from Chicago going on five years ago now, which is crazy to me. And uh, we just had our first baby on Valentine's Day, a little baby, Rebecca. Uh, I might be biased. I think she's the cutest girl in the world. And if you know me, you knew there was no way I was making it through this message without showing a picture of this little girl. Uh, but having her led us to a really difficult decision of moving back to Chicago to be closer to family. And this was super difficult for us because we love the PNW. We have fallen in love with some of the beauty of the Pacific Northwest. We love our community here. Church, we love you. <laughs> we love abundant life. So many of you who are listening, but as sad as it's been, thinking through some of those things, it's also, we've also been affirmed that it's the right decision because of how excited we are to be closer to family, uh, to see our daughter and uh, grow up around our, our family. So I have to say, uh, before I wrap up this morning, that church, I am like 
inexplicably grateful uh, for the opportunity that you've given me to teach over these past few years. It has been such an honor and I've been so encouraged by so many of you. You know, you have written me notes or, or cards or taken me out to coffee and just let me know how God is using me to impact your life. And I'm super grateful for that. I've also had many of you challenge me and say, hey, I really disagree with you on this. And we've been able to get coffee and wrestle together and hopefully sharpen one another. It has been a, a tremendous joy. And while I was sad to think, man, this, this is gonna be my last message at ALC, I was also uh, given this incredible prayer time with God and asking, you know, as I look at these parables, what would you have me leave with? What would my parting words be from these stories of Jesus? And I felt like there were two really clear, really practical messages. And so I wanna leave you with this. The first one is you are valued. Church, you are valued collectively, but you are valued individually. God says you are worth being recklessly pursued, recklessly pursued by the God of the universe, the creator of heaven and earth. Even if you feel like you are a Sotos, that beyond saving, like your life is beyond redemption for whatever reason. If life is falling apart, maybe you even feel like it's your fault. God looks at you. And based on these stories, he says, you have tremendous value. You have incredible worth. You are worth a reckless pursuit. God is pursuing you. The second thing I wanna leave you with kind of gets into purpose. You know, you have significant value, but when it comes to purpose, God wants to recklessly pursue others through you. God wants to recklessly pursue others through you. Do you have people in your life right now who if you went out to lunch with them, the Pharisees would look at you guys and say, oh man, he eats with those people. She eats with those people. If you do, I would say that's fantastic because they have incredible value. We have opportunities all around us to be like the shepherd, to seek after those who are, who are lost, who are confused, who are anxious, who are scared. We have opportunities to be like the woman who searches exhaustively for the lost coin, who understands the value of that which is lost. We have opportunities to be like the father to extend grace and forgiveness to people who don't earn it, who don't deserve it and watch how it transforms their life when we do. Who does God want to recklessly pursue through you? Uh, we have an easy opportunity. I don't know if you know this, but next week is Easter. And I'll tell you, people in our lives who are often uh, not, uh, not willing or not available uh, to go to church, they typically respond pretty well to an invite to Easter. And so I would challenge you, who in your life can you invite? I've read through some of Pastor Aaron Walton's notes for his message, uh, his celebration of the resurrection. We're gonna have worship. It is going to be a kingdom party this weekend. And so uh, I pray that you'll join us. I pray that you'll invite someone to join us as well. Church, you are valued. You are worth being recklessly pursued and God wants to pursue others through you. Would you pray with me? 
Jesus, I thank you so much for the way that you taught. So many of us, when, when uh, being given an indictment like you were from the Pharisees, we would have responded with arguments, with bitterness, with a, with a nasty tweet on Twitter. You respond with a story, a story that reveals how much you love us, how far you're willing to go to pursue us. I thank you for the truth that we find in these stories. Though fictional, they have incredible truth about who you are and who we ought to be if we want to participate in the kingdom of God at work around us. Jesus, I pray for those listening to my voice right now who are struggling to identify the value that you say they have. God, I pray that they would recognize it, that they would soak in it, that they would understand how valuable, how worthy they are because you said so. Thank you for the way that you recklessly pursue us. God, I pray that we would allow you to use us to recklessly pursue others through us. Thank you for this time together. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.